welcome back to yet another episode of Behind the Lens during life in the time of COVID. We are live coming to you from the wonderful Adrenaline Radio Studios in Whittier, uh, where we are every single Monday. Pam and I, Pam and I are here with soundproof, bulletproof glass separating us. We just wave at each other. I throw things at the glass when she's on her phone and she's not watching the phone ringing when we have a a talented guest calling in. Uh, But we're here every Monday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm Debbie Elias, film film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line talking to the movers and shakers, the TV and filmmakers. Uh, directors, writers, production designers, a lot of producers of late I've been speaking to, um, not live on air, but in other pre-recorded interviews that will be up on BehindTheLensOnline.net. A lot of discussion revolving around where film is going. What is the future of film with the current lockdown situation? Um, Spoke with James Bresick the other week, and... One of his big concerns is where is where's the content coming going to come from because nothing is in the pipeline now. But then again, we've got a couple other filmmakers um, who actually are making films, uh, such as Brian Barsuglia, making it films making films remotely using Zoom or directing. directing cast who are performing in their own home with a camera set up in their home, uh, getting direction over the internet. So it's going to be really interesting um, to see what happens with the films that, you know, when we get some new films coming down the pike. Because as James pointed out to me when we spoke, uh, most of the distributors... I'm not talking Disney, Warner's, Paramount, Universal. I'm talking the indie distributors such as Gravitas, even A24, um, Lionsgate. They have lineup. They have films slotted for maybe three, four months in advance. But then what's in the pipeline after that? Um, This is one big concern. And this is something that uh, part of the industry that people are not addressing, uh, that the government is not addressing. Um. But movies are a very key part of what's keeping us alive and some semblance of sanity during what is now in California going on. We're in six weeks of lockdown. Um, so movies are a very important part, and a part of keeping us sane and, and this country functioning. And you think of all the jobs of people that get put to work and the money that gets generated into economies. Um, You know, back during the Depression, and I know some of you have heard me say this over the years, but Shirley Temple became a star because Franklin Delano Roosevelt ordered Hollywood to make happy movies, to make movies for the people, to cheer them in depressive times, to cheer them when they wanted, you know, when they're jumping out of windows with a stock market crash. Um, there's nobody, we don't have a cheering section now. And we so desperately need one. 
which is why I'm so thankful for the independent films that are out there, for distributors like Gravitas, for people, the, the companies that are pivoting their release schedules and giving you some great films that, while that a lot of them would look so spectacular on the big screen, at least we get to see them on the small screen, streaming on our home TVs, home theaters. Um, this Friday, a film I can't recommend highly enough. I love this film. Um, Robert the Bruce. It is the ongoing story of Robert the Bruce and is being released time to Scotland's 700th anniversary of independence. Angus McFadden, uh, co-writer and reprises his role as the Bruce. You first saw him 25 years ago in Braveheart, where he originated the role. And he has worked on this story for decades uh, to bring it to you. The film is directed by Richard Gray. It is fantastic. And it has a very unique perspective. And that it isn't all about blood and guts and battle. It's about what's happening behind the scenes. It's it's the, the widows and the children that are left behind. And how a king can change his perception when he becomes one with the people. Uh, it's an amazing film. And that is out streaming. Uh, digital and I think on VOD also this coming Friday. Put that on your calendar. There are so many other fun films that are out there for you. Two of them we're going to talk about today with our special guests. But be on the lookout for, last week we talked about Butt Boy. We've also got some great horror films coming up. Evil Little Things. Impact Event we talked about last week. The Other Lamb is out right now. It's an IFC film. It's strange, but it's fascinating, riveting. You cannot look away abominable it's a fun horror film it's played straight it's not funny but it's fun to watch and you guessed it what could abominable be like the abominable snowman the yeti um we've got same boat is out there some we've got rootwood a great horror film that just opened um that is phenomenal if you like horror coming up soon how to build a girl Coming up also the end uh, this week or next week, the true story of the Kelly gang, uh, Russell Crowe, George McKay. Uh, I, that's another one I love. Um, it ranks right up there with Robert the Bruce in terms of history and bringing history to life on the screen. Clover is out right now with Mark Weber. We've got nowhere to go. Run This Town, and of course, Resistance is on VOD and streaming. The fabulous story written and directed by Jonathan Jakubowicz about the little-known story of Marcel Marceau as a youth and what he did to help orphans, Jewish orphans, escape Nazi-occupied France during World War II. Uh, I am not a huge Jesse Eisenberg fan, he won me over in this film. Vivarium, uh, uh, Saban Films is putting it out, and it is bizarre. It's another Jesse Eisenberg film. Uh, and it's so worth a watch. It's creepy cool, as I like to call it. Um, 
just so many film called Eve is out there. We had the we had the filmmaker uh, on the show about six eight weeks ago. Greed, we are as gods. Uh, just so many exit zero. You East Coasterners, if you know Jersey, you know the Parkway, you know the Jersey Turnpike. This is a thriller, custom made for you. It's great. So there's a lot out there, a lot out there for you to see. Um, but, and of course, I have to give a huge shout out before I welcome our first guest to the show today. I have to give a huge shout out to TCM. Uh, this weekend was supposed to be our 11th annual TCM Classic Film Festival. Obviously, it was canceled. TCM pivoted. They turned it into an online festival, a special home edition. Uh, and what they did is, and God bless Charlie Tabish, one of the greatest programmers known to mankind and his team, they pulled highlights from the past 10 years, films that had screened, interviews, intros, Q&As, and put that all together for a wonderful experience, a lot of Zoom meetups, with the TCM fans, um, many of whom are my friends. Normally, TCM week, we would have Kelly Pratt, Aurora Desmond, and several others would be joining me on the show to talk about the upcoming fest. We didn't do that this year. Next week, uh, next year, I hope we do it two weeks in a row before the festival because we're going to have a lot of catching up to do uh, for next year's fest. And then for the broadcasters and filmmakers out there missing the National Association of Broadcasters Convention, which started yesterday. So it's a tough, tough time for all. But hopefully Behind the Lens is here, giving you some movie ideas of things you can watch at home. And right now I'm going to welcome, he's on the line, right? I'm going to welcome a very talented filmmaker to Behind the Lens, Bailey Kobe. Hi, Bailey. Welcome. Hi, Debbie. How are you? Well, I'm very excited to be talking to you. And I will tell you what I said to my engineer, Pam, before the show started. I said, my God, I wish that uh, that Kim had had, pitched, had asked me about Ragdoll before she asked me about the other film, uh, the filmmaker that we're, I'm going to have on after you, because uh-huh. I am so in love with what you have done with Ragdoll. Such a... Okay. Be- yeah. a it is so beautifully introspective. I love that it's set in the MMA world, in the women's MMA world. And yes, absolutely. And you have some of my, not only do you have some of my favorite supporting players, such as Dot Marie Jones, who I think she is just so much fun in every role she tackles. Uh, Ste- Stephanie Erb. But we see Shannon Murray with really a breakout performance. As our protagonist, Nora, uh, a girl facing every hardship known to mankind in her life, a mother dying of cancer. (laughs) She's trying to make money. She's working in a crappy motel, cleaning rooms. She's doing a a, pulling a few tricks on the side for some more cash. Got a grumpy caregiver who just keeps her mom company (laughs) during the day. (laughs) You never see. You're taking off those, those. Boxes, you know, of of, uh, of of those kind of tropes, you know, you that, that are found in these movies, but we wanted to encapsulate those into 
story points that, that were different. And so, you know, you have the sick mother, but, okay, how can we play that that responds to the psychological state that we're pushing uh, for mm-hmm. our character, Nora? And I think that, uh, as you said, that Shannon Murray does an amazing job of, of, of absorbing all of these influences into the performance. Oh, the introspection. And this is kudos to your your DP, Amy Sulek. Um, Amy Sulek. I got to tell you, the imagery that she captures um, and just holds on Shannon's face, especially when she's in the ring, um, it is, it's striking. The way the two of you have designed your visual palette, your visual tonal bandwidth, you have a lot of, of extreme close-ups. And it's not just on faces. It's on the body parts. It's on, you know, shoulders snapping. It's on the physicality and the strain that materializes in a body. It's a great metaphor for the strain that Nora is feeling emotionally. And exactly. And communication. You know, I think that's what's, what's missing for us in the sport was, or the representation of the sport was when you're in uh, a hold or your physical moment with somebody, there's a conversation going on. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, push and a pull. And, and what if you have a backstory of that person that you're pushing and pulling against? That made it interesting for me as, as a filmmaker to, to tackle because I didn't want a normal fight scene. I wanted uh, a dramatic scene within the fight. Yeah. And that's exactly what you have, even in the sparring matches. And here again, um, Roxana Sanchez, who plays a friend, a frenemy, a frenemy might be the good description. <laughs> For Aisha, um, yeah. who Nora is her sparring partner, but then when Nora decides she wants to compete for the title and a lot of money that she desperately needs, um, things get a little heated, and a few other little things happen in there as well. But well, that's the thing that's the that we're trying to address. You you have you know what if what if that person that you know you're in the ring with, uh, you have a relationship, with, and then we we take those scenes and. We take the minutia of the relationship and express them as they're moving between a movement or, or, or taking punches. It's a communication. And, you know, what if that's somebody that you care about? What if that's somebody you love, you know, in the ring with you? How do you, do you treat them differently? You know, these sort of uh, other underlying things about the relationship come through within these scenes. Mm-hmm. I, it's just so well constructed, Bailey, on an emotional level, a story level, a visual level. And you, that third act explodes. I just about came out of my seat watching the big reveal in the third act. And I'm like, oh, my God. And this is where Dot Marie Jones really, you've got that, that scene in the ring there between rounds, between her and Shannon's character of Nora. And that is... A to that is heart wrenching, heart wrenching. Not, not a dry eye. Literally, she she that, that naturally began crying during that scene, and we all after the take, like we're all, we're all wiping our eyes because she went to that that level, uh, you know, in the scene. I just, you know, where did the idea for Ragdoll come from? I know that you have an MMA background, um, and in sports, and yeah, we all did. You know, we and, had, uh, Darren, Darren Longley was the writer. You know, he, he was he's a, a former police officer. He created a world of real grit. And, you know, this this character that was going through a lot of 
adversity. That I responded to that because I, I hadn't seen that girl in cinema before. I grew up with that girl, you know, the girls in the MMA gyms um, that, you know, were in there maybe sometimes not for the best reason. You know, they were in there to because they had to find a way to protect themselves physically. And so, the, and there was a mentality of, you know, that girl who's, who's just doing it all. And I'm always, I'm always around <laughs> and I'm always blown away, including my wife, like you're, you know, you have career, you have work, you have all these things, but you're still able to, to you know, take that one hour a day to accomplish uh, something, you know, for yourself or accomplish you know, a, a step towards a, a big goal for yourself personally. And um, so we started there and it, it just kind of conversations because once I had, uh, you know, she brought the project to me uh, because she said, I finally found something <laughs> that, that I can I can play that, you know, uh, uh, I'm not going to have to go through an audition for that's, that's going to think, you know, uh, uh, that I'm not the right type or that's not pretty enough or uh, I'm too, you know, physical. I was like, exactly. I want, I want a story about, you know, this type of person. And uh, we were off to the races from there once we, once we, once we had, so Shannon, we, we began adding, uh, you know, Dot, you know, Dot originally was as a man in the script. <laughs> and I was just like, you know, kind of talking to my casting directors, uh, Helen Zier and Kendra Clark. And I'm like, okay, you know, you guys know I want to do something different. Like, let's, let's talk. And they're just like, what about Dot Marie Jones? And I'm like, yes, please bet Dot Marie Jones. If we can at all possibly, you know, work around any schedule, get her into a, a, a set of ours, I'd love it. And she really responded to the material. She's a 10-time arm wrestling champion, uh, you know, former near Olympian uh, shot putter. She is she mm-hmm. and she is that physical type of person. Yeah, and she loves bringing these stories. People. Yeah, and then you get Stephanie Urban there, who plays Nora's oh. mother, and Stephanie is so so adept at playing mother roles. Uh, we see her pop in and out of, you know, one-offs on TV series, telemovies, things like that. And she just slides in effortlessly. And the positivity and the grace that she gives to the character of Catherine, who is dying of cancer, but the big thing is make Nora live for herself. Find her dream. Go after her dream. And so beautifully written. An incredible. Yeah, there was another great scene at the end with with them too. It was really a tearjerker to, to, to film because you know they really connected uh, as actors and then on screen. It really shows. And Stephanie is so talented. She, as you said, she can step into anything. She yeah. steps into like you know big comedies to the weeds mm-hmm. to Ray Donovan. <laughs> she can step into any tone. Yeah, it's really out of heart for you. You know, but then you take these great performances and you really. You work with your cinematographer and you really use the tools in the toolbox judiciously and to their best advantage. Beautiful use of slow motion in this film. Beautiful use. And as I said, your use of extreme close-ups, fabulously done. And it also showcases the sport where we actually see techniques we actually get to see some real MMA techniques being implemented. But then... Yeah, I think that too. Mark, Martin Wheeler, Tommy Matanez, my fight, my fight coordinators, they're, they're like the go-to guys in, in Hollywood. Like if Wesley Snipes has a movie he calls, he calls Wheeler. Um, and so I, I trained actually with Martin Wheeler um, in, in MMA. Or he does a, this, a, a called Sistema, which is a very specific part of MMA. And um, and so I begged them to be a part of it, and they thought 
know, that, that really inventiveness. Because, again, I'm, I'm trying to express not just earn a fight, but how can I express the, the holes that they're doing to each other and the way that expresses their relationship? So you get, you know, reverse, you know, or Nora, Nora's last final, you know, uh, sort of hole is, is called the reverse crucifix, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, you know, we're, we're really trying to express uh, the, our characterization, the relationship, um, through the move, and they, they were so on board with. They're so gifted in, in what they do that they were allowed. They, they allowed to express you know the story with the movement. Mm-hmm. And of course, then you have this amazing lighting design and differentiating between Nora and Catherine's home, which is more golden toned. It's warm. It's beautiful. It's open, versus mm-hmm. being in the ring, which is vibrant. It's saturated. It's but your lighting it's starker but it's saturated, um, and then you've got the motel, which is so bland, so lifeless, so gray. So please get me out of here. It's horrible. Um, and hand in hand with that is your framing design, um, where you have framing that is intimate within the home, extreme intimacy in the ring that more speaks to fighters being in the mental zone is what you really comes across. And of course, then the wide frames at the motel of please get me out of here. Uh, (laughs) This is why I love talking to another filmmaker. This is great. Thank you. I I, I love that you're appreciating sort of, you know, the the work and the effort because it's not me. It is, you know, DP Amy Selleck. It's, you know, uh, it's even costume design. You know, you're you're getting a sense of that drabness uh, by working with my costume designer, Dizzy Aguilar, because I want her to mix into the world in certain you know, areas, um, in certain you know scenes, and uh, even Yulitzin Alvarez's you know makeup. Uh, uh, you know, we we all work together creatively to place our our, our subject into into the space, and that subject can either pop or blend into. Uh, and, and become small in the space. Mm-hmm. And that's real. And the only time we ever see any real life come into play in Nora's world, any real energy and any kind of really other than her mother, is with the introduction of your character of Jason, a simple mm-hmm. act of kindness, and this guy's exuberance and joy and... You know, uh, you've got a great moment in the third act where Dot's character of Rasheen is, is telling Nora, look, you can't disappoint. Your biggest fan is in the audience. <laughs> and here you bookended, you bring, you know, here is Jason, Mr. Energy, Mr. Excitement, Mr. Wow, I really want to see you really should compete. It's like, you know, you can do this. You can do this. And it's fabulously done. But here again, <laughs> and when he shows up in the scene... At any time, when at the motel, the camera comes in closer. It's more yeah. in, fo- in tune with her world. There's a focus there. And a lot of this is about where is Nora's focus. Exactly. Uh, is, it, is, it positive with, is it positive in which he is, you know, kind of, he seems almost over positive, or is it with uh, just two foils in this thing and, and sort of two sets of foils? One is, one is uh, Dante Bosco, her love interest. Uh, who's amazing, and he's, he's just, like, been around for forever. You, you may remember Rufio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's most important. Uh, but also, you know, with Ro- Roxana Sanchez, you know, there's there's a different type of relationship and, and approach, 
and she's 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 feeling her way through both, but both uh, their their opposite end meaning. So one is very positive, uh, you know, with Dante, and is is very sort of like you know, uh, it's a different mentality versus the one that is a bit more heated and uh, a bit more seductive potentially mm-hmm. um, with. But what what I really love about how you, the the relationship with Jason is this is the one person who shows her a kind who shows Nora a kindness and asks nothing in return because in Nora's mind everybody wants something when she's in the ring when she's sparring exactly. with Aisha well it's got to be this move this move this move so Aisha can practice it's when she's at home it's got to be I've got to get this this and this I've got to get prescriptions this this and this for mom I can't really sleep because I have to be up it's all but this is the one element in this film and I love that that this is the one person that asks for absolutely nothing and it's hard to process right you're that type of person you're like wait what was your angle here what were the, you know, and then you bring in Scott Tang's music. You've got some great, great scoring happening in here. Yeah, Scott is an undiscovered gem. He's done a couple of commercials, and I'm lucky to work in the commercials world uh, fairly often. And so, uh, you know, it was like, a, hey, why, why haven't you done a feature yet? And he just hadn't had the opportunity. And I think that that's what, for me, a lot, a lot of what these these films are for: giving people who who don't have an opportunity an opportunity mm-hmm. to express what I see in them. Yeah, and a lot of talent, of people that you know I've brought on for this film, uh, who didn't have you know like uh, like uh, like Scott, like I mean there's just so many who you know, didn't really have the opportunity to express themselves and do so so beautifully here. You know what was the most challenging aspect of bringing Ragdoll to life, Bailey? Because uh, number one, okay, we're showcasing the sport. So much of it is set in the ring. We've got the girls going at each other. You're actually executing moves. You've got insurance things to worry about. Uh, you know things that a normal filmmaker may not really think about, other than oh my god, I got to have insurance because they might trip and fall down the stairs. No, here <laughs> you could actually have somebody breaking a neck. Um, that is that was a huge concern of, of mine. I'm, I'm I'm super uber safe when it, when it comes to safe set uh, a, a safe set for not just my actors but my crew as well, and so. That's why I brought in and I bet Taylor and, and Minami uh, Katanas to, to be a part of this because I was then able, because of my relationship, bring in the girls that needed to do the fights very early. We train, you know, six, seven, eight weeks out. Um, you know, getting down the moves so pat, super, super safe. And we're on set, we're taking it just, you know, at normal speeds. I actually had to stop girls from going at each other. Oh, my God. <laughs> so aggressive, you know, because they're, they're so competitive. But they want to almost win the fight <laughs> naturally, and so I had to slow them down and, and really, you know, uh, uh, do things bit by bit. So you can you can kind of tell like we're we're, we're beat by beat by emotional beat through those fight scenes to allow to take the pressure off of the physicality, which naturally will build and potentially end an in injury. And so we uh, made sure that we didn't. So the tough part for me was, was keeping keeping everybody healthy on a set. My uh, um, uh, uh, Shannon Marie, uh, uh, you know, had a, was in a car accident, oh my um, God. you know, after, uh, and we, we still had yet to finish the final fight. <laughs> so, uh, I had to give her, uh, a good nine months to heal. And I really oh. wanted to make sure completely healed. I didn't want her thinking she was, she was like, so gung ho. She's like, yeah, when are we going to shoot next? I'm like, no, we're going <laughs> to, we're going to wait so long. I want to see, and I want to talk to the doctors. I want to get like a verification that you're like a hundred percent. 
before we even attempt uh, looking at doing any more work. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, it, it was well worth the wait uh, because she really, she really delivers here. The whole film, Bailey, is just, I didn't know what to expect with this film. And, you know, looking at the poster, it's like you think, okay, it's going to be a Ronda Rousey type film. Ron, just, you know, putting a Ronda in the ring on, you know, into a narrative feature about, about MMA. Um, and that's exactly what we want. We want those people to understand, okay, like, okay, this is the type of movie, but we want it to support as, as filmmakers, and I, and I think you, you can appreciate this, as, you know, all those elements that you see in those fight movies, we're trying to subvert for the purpose of getting into the psychology of what's mm-hmm. going on with Nora and, and that type of person. I feel like I can relate to that type of person. I'm that type of person who's, you know, I want to take on all these things at once. I want to try and get things done. And I sacrifice myself. Like, I, I have no sense of, of me, you know, when I'm trying to work, even if in, in a film, there's no me. There's no, I'm, I'm, I'm a director by organizing, pulling mm-hmm. all this stuff together, but there is no me. There is no, this is what I say. It should go. Oh, like, oh, this is a great idea. This is what we're going to work on. It's fantastic. It's on board, but there's no me. There's the selflessness to uh, this character that I wanted to. Yeah, no, it's, and I guarantee you, knowing your publicist as many decades as I have and knowing her so well, I guarantee you that that's what attracted Kim to this film, to hand, to rep it. Because she's, she's very picky. She's very picky about what she will handle. And she has to have a personal connection. There's something in that film has to connect with her. Um, and that's one thing I love about her as a publicist, because if she doesn't like a film, if she doesn't believe in the film, she doesn't think that she can then give 150% to the film. Um, so, but this is just so well done. Now, where, since I'm just about out of time with you, Bailey, I got to move on to Carlisle. Um, where can everybody see Ragdoll right now? Because I know it's out. It's out on VOD. It's a small theatrical run. Uh, right before the coronavirus, we had a small theatrical run. It was lovely, and it was so great to see so many people uh, attend. And then uh, we were out on uh, VOD, uh, Amazon, uh, all the cable providers, and uh, pretty much anywhere you can uh, buy a movie, essentially, um, right available. So now, what is next for you, uh, either post-COVID, during COVID, are you working on it on a new film now? Writing something, um, editing something. <laughs> I know, right? And in this time, it's it's so weird because we were actually shooting uh, my next film, uh, which is uh, called "God Is an Astronaut," an Oprah's book list novel um, from Allison Foster. Such a lovely piece of material uh, set in the near future space race, but it's about uh, a female protagonist who's dealing with. Um, you know, what, what the space race essentially means for family. It's very, very specific, mm-hmm. but it's so beautifully I'm super excited to, to bring it to the screen. Um, but that was the thing. It was just suddenly, hey, we're, <laughs> we're on hiatus. So I was happy to get the, the scenes that we did shoot. But um, now we're on hiatus. We're, we're going to wait to see how things go. And, you know, movie, the movie making isn't, you know, I think, uh, the most important part. It's just sharing stories, I think, at this point. And so mm-hmm. however we can do that. That's, you know, through me making this film or, you know, me jumping on YouTube, 
pressing, you know, the, the filmmaking process or the writing process or dealing with kids. Uh, <laughs> uh, I have like three kids, so, you know, my life is, is mainly centered around, you know, Zoom classes with, you know, <laughs> elementary school teachers. Uh, well, Bailey, I can't thank you enough. This has been a, such a joy to have you on the show. And I hope I, so. I hope you'll come back on again. I'd love to. You're so insightful. I, I love I love talking to other filmmakers. So thank you, for, Debbie. It was a pleasure. Oh, thank you, Bailey. And I'll talk to you soon. Be well. Bye bye. And that was Bailey Kobe talking about Ragdoll. And now, the very patient and wonderful Carlisle Kellum is with us. Hi, Carlisle. <laughs> You hey, got, how are you? You got the day right this time. You were so anxious to oh, do the show. <laughs> Carlisle was so anxious, people, that a few weeks ago he called in a couple weeks early. He's so anxious to talk about Comfort Farms. and. So, yeah, I, did, I saw Monday, and I saw it Monday. <laughs> well, I <didn't>. well <laughs> I've been so – I won't go into it. But, but anyway. Yeah, that did happen. Comfort Farms is – a very unique documentary. Very unique, Carlisle. Oh, good. I'm glad. Um, your approach to telling this story, uh, telling it totally from the subject's point of view with no talking heads thrown in there, um, mm-hmm. no experts, which is something that, that I found very striking, is that this is the story of... it's. John Jackson's story, former Army Ranger, came sure. back from, you know, six tours of duty, as mm-hmm. as we've seen so many men and women do, um, and he was ready to commit suicide, and then suffering from PTSD, and unfortunately, the suicide rate of our veterans coming back from the wars, I think, is the highest suicide rate, uh, the cause of suicide in the country. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, my friend Rick Roman Waugh, a couple of years ago, Rick did a film uh, focusing on two uh, soldier veterans who returned, that which I love destroys me, and that was a big thing that was brought up there. Then we've had the narrative mm-hmm. feature from Remy Abergenois uh, and Kate Nolan, Bloodstripe, about mm-hmm. a narrative, but it's a female coming back and dealing oh, yeah. and not dealing. And even earlier, mm-hmm. Linda Cardellini was in the film Return from writer-director Liza Johnson. Again, the female perspective of dealing with PTSD. And it's, mm-hmm. it's more about the world that you're coming into and the expectations of what everybody thinks you should be doing. But something mm-hmm. in you, you can't really fit into that. It's fitting a square peg into a round hole anymore. Right. And... What John did is he got off his duff and thought things through, and he went back to the earth and started farming. And from there, Comfort Farms took off with this agrocognitive behavioral behavioral therapy idea. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that is fascinating. I now would like to see a second documentary by the way <laughs> with experts talking about this and how it fits into rehabilitative yeah. therapy programs 
You know, um, first of all, let me say this. I can hear an echo. Can you hear it? Because if you can't hear it, I'm all good. I can deal with it. I just want to make sure that Pam shaking know, her head. Connection. Pam shaking her head in the booth. Well, are you on earbuds or a cell phone? Cell phone. Okay. Quite often there we do get echoes when people, I don't mind when people are on, but we're not getting the echo here. Okay, that's fine then. Okay. Um, so to answer your question, um, yes. I did very purposely want to do it without any kind of, uh, like, narration straight from the veteran's point of view. Um, A lot of it uh, is about empowering veterans or veterans becoming empowered through um, this particular program or other programs or or kind of finding their new mission after coming back from – well, not always combat, but in, in this case, everybody I interviewed was in combat. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to do it in an empowered way. I shot them, you know, with wide lenses, kind of close up, and I wanted it to feel like they were, It was, you know, I wanted them to tell their story without somebody interrupting it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, that's why I did that. As far as having experts come in, there's one guy in there, um, his name's C, um, and... You know, he's pretty recognizable. He's the it's kind of the philosophical, psychological mm-hmm. guy that that, that that seems really intelligent, or is very intelligent. Um, he's all he's uh, in fact a uh, a therapist. Mm-hmm. He's a certi- certified therapist, so he is in some sense an expert. Um, but he's also a combat veteran. Mm-hmm. Um, but. You know, this film, the way that I wanted to make it, I when I first, when it was first introduced to me, I didn't want to really do it because, um, you know, there's so many films out there about PTSD and the struggling veteran and this and that, and all that stuff is so important. I'm not trying to marginalize it at all. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know what I could add to that kind of space, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you mentioned earlier about the female veterans coming back. I, that's adding something because you don't see stuff like that very often. But I didn't know what I could add to this space until I went down there and met John and really saw that there was a, a real angle to this. And, and the angle included not only the, um, uh, just, you know, kind of the surface subject matter of what was going on there and what they were doing, but also there was a lot of irony and a lot of kind of literary mm-hmm. type of, uh, uh, irony and kind of metaphor, and it was just you know I kept unpacking all of this this interesting stuff that made it seem almost kind of like a piece of literature to me in my mind. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense. To no, you. <laughs> it, it makes perfect sense. Um, having seen the film, it makes very much perfect sense um, mm-hmm. because you take us through what. Uh, what comfort farms is we see animal slaughter um we see vegetables so we get the full sense but in but then you've got some really uh, really powerful editing happening there where you've got you know men walking in muddy ground uh, right mm-hmm. after you've got a shot of an animal being prepared for slaughter or being dropped into the humane methods of, of the way so, some of these animals are are killed. Right. Um, sure. 
but it's very, it sends you right away. It's the metaphor of you think, while Afghanistan and Iraq, you don't think of mud and water, you just think of, of desert, but you think of, right. you think of Vietnam vividly. Or World War II. And, of course, you you bring in, you have wonderful on-air recollections and interviews with Forrest Giles, uh, who served... Yeah, he was was really, really... really, Who served in World War II. And this has been, this ties this thread of war and what it does mentally. And, you know, how, you know, one way that some, some people are dealing... And dealing with mm-hmm. it with such positivity to create this farm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really like the way your editing is done structurally in that respect that really plays on the metaphor of what we're seeing of life and death, the parallels of farming and combat. Um, you're right. F- and, you know, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no. I was, I was just going to say that. Uh, because you're in combat, yes, there's death, but there is often death in order to save life. Exactly. And in farming, right. there is slaughter and there is death in order to feed and save life. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, one of the quotes that I have in there, I'm going to mess it up, but it's something along the lines of, um, the true soldier does not fight because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. Mm-hmm. So especially, I, I heard this a lot from Forrest Giles, and, you know, his perspective might be different than most others, but he seemed to make it sound like a lot of people share this. And, you know, back then, it wasn't an all-volunteer force back in World War II. A lot of them, you know, they would go into battle, and today we're used to seeing just, like, um, this idea of, oh, just kill them, and they're dead, blah, 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 you know, no big deal. But he said that, you know, you didn't really like to do that. I mean, you, you had to do it, because that was the nature of what you're doing, but you didn't, you still felt like it was something awful to cheer about. I mean, in his words, to cheer about it and say it was, you know, so great that you killed so-and-so. And maybe that's just his perspective. Maybe others didn't have it, but... You know, I, it, it just gave me the impression of the noble kind of warrior who is out there to defend what he loves rather than to hate what he's fighting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that is a very important concept. And I think it's very important for the world to move closer to kind of a world of peace. People have, need to have that kind of thinking, you know, not just this go out and destroy whatever's in front of me. Right. But, you know, I'm going to fight, yes, and I'm going to be brave, and I'm going to do it in an honorable way, but I'm not going to do it with hate. I'm going to do it with love. Mm-hmm. And this whole film, to me, ultimately, in a strange way, and the reason why I put so, so many of these, like, 60s ballads and kind of um, one of the bands that I use is called The Love Language, and then there's an artist named Benji Hughes, whose songs are mostly written about love <laughs> I did all that on purpose because to me the whole film is really kind of a love story and in and, and the way of sacrifice, kind of like, uh, you know, Dostoevsky said, love in action is harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. And it's kind of like that. It's like, you know, they love these animals. They raise them like pets. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, uh, and then, yeah, they slaughter them. 
and, mm-hmm. and they do that because they know that they have to in order to live the lifestyle that they want to live. And, mm-hmm. But they do it painfully. They don't do it, you know, greedily or without any respect. It's, it's kind of a Native American. There's a guy from Louisiana throughout the film. His name's Brian Kaiser. Right. Um, you, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, and, and he's he, very spiritually he, oriented. Well, he's very he's very Native American. Or he has a lot of kind of. As a matter of fact, the day before I got there, he performs some like kind of Native American type rituals and so forth and so on. And he really sees it that way. Like this is our substance. These people, these animals are dying so that we can live. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not to be taken lightly, or it's, it's not to be taken cheaply. And it's not something that you're just supposed to. Um, you know, kind of, long story short, you know, we go to the grocery store and we just buy stuff and we don't think about where it comes from. And, you know, I do that too. I mean, most people do these days because it's really hard not to, not to, because it's the way our culture's set up. But, I mean, if you really think about it, you know, something's dying for us to live, whether it be war, whether it be even eating a plant, you're killing something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so I think that the whole thing is, like you said, a really interesting kind of study of life, death, and, and sacrifice, and a lot of other things like that. Yeah, and then interspersed in there, I'm curious how you came up with your through line, uh, because in here you've got quite a bit of DOD footage uh, yes. put in. You've got uh, TV TV news clips. Uh, you've also got uh, John Jackson speaking at Georgia Military College. Uh, and I do love your transitional slides with different quotes. Uh, but the, yeah. D- the DOD footage I find really interesting um, mm-hmm. in terms of d- getting access to that, inserting that, but constructing this through line and putting in all these moving parts. Yeah. I wanted to kind of make it feel like a dream in some of those things, you know, like, uh, not a dream, but I'm not a dream in the classical set, but I like, you know, this, these people are, you know, kind of like their recollection. Um, but yeah, the DOD footage, a lot of that is, um, either from the National Archives or there's a site that um, offers a lot of contemporary DOD footage. And then there's some footage that's not DOD footage, that's actual combat footage mm-hmm. that I got. Um, and, yeah, so I thought it was really interesting. To, to, you know, some of the World War II footage in color and so forth I thought was really interesting. Um, but, yeah. And how did how how did, how did you go about because there's a definite through line here. So interweaving mm-hmm. all these parts with the interviews uh from the veterans that you have. And were mm-hmm. there any of the veterans that participate at Comfort Farms that did not want to be interviewed that were reticent? Yes. Oh yeah. There were a couple that I really wanted to interview that were weren't interested. Mhm. Yeah. So how um, how does that play into your grand scheme? Because here you are, you're, you're writer, director, your DP, and you're editing. Is this something right. that you were editing on the fly? Did you have it planned out where, okay, I really want to get Soldier ABC 
but I can only get Soldier B. So is that, are you editing on the fly as you're shooting or editing in your head? Or are you just waiting to assemble everything after you get whatever it is that you get? It's a little bit of both. Um, and it's kind of the way I've learned to kind of work with this kind of stuff, especially when, you know, obviously budgets are really thin. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I knew that I was going to get certain people, but a lot of it was luck. I ended up getting some people that I didn't. I ended up getting a lot of what I needed, not expecting to be able to get it. Um, but, you know, some of the people that, that didn't want to be involved, I don't know that it would have made the, the story that much different. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, no, I started off with a general idea based on um, kind of the angle that I saw after visiting there a couple of times. Well, let me take that back. So I went down there, and I started to mull it over for a while, and I started to recognize a lot of these angles. And I think the first thing that I recognized was the farm's name itself. It's named Comfort Farms, Mm -hmm. which first brings to mind, hey, this is going to be a film about, you know, a farm where these veterans go to find comfort. Mm -hmm. But the truth is it's named Comfort Farms after... Kyle Comfort, who died in combat in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. who is one of John Jackson's close friends. Um, and so there you kind of have, that was kind of the first thing I noticed, that, you know, there's a little bit of interest in, in just that alone. That kind of says something. And then the more I started to look into it, the more I realized that it's not a place of comfort at all. It's a place where a lot of veterans who um, kind of want to run away um, are kind of faced you know, a lot of, according to John, and I'll, I'll kind of quote John here, you know, a lot of these vets want to run away from the noise and the death and the slaughter yeah. and all this kind of stuff. And, and, you know, there's a distinction between what vets want and what they need. And mm-hmm. um, in his mind, what they, they don't need is to be coddled or the thought of as being pitiful. But they need to find their new identity, their new mission. And, you know, being on the farm and experiencing all of these things instead of running from them, kind of helps them do that um and his goal is to try to use the same methods used to um condition someone to be a warrior to kind of condition them back to their new normal um but you know one of the interesting things that i found about this and another one of the interviewing a lot of these veterans was that you know i always thought that well first of all that ptsd was really all there was but you know, I was, I was, I learned that no, that's not the case at all. A lot of people are diagnosed with PTSD that have entire, uh, t- entire problems that are entirely unrelated to P- PTSD. Mm-hmm. They're just misdiagnosed, and it doesn't have, the treatment doesn't help them. Um, and a lot of it, interestingly, especially with a lot of the combat veterans, when you get into kind of like the special forces people and stuff like that, mm-hmm. you know, they come back and. I had a buddy like this who came back and it wasn't all the blood and gore and danger that gave them this kind of feeling of, uh, you know, uh, a lack of, it was almost boredom. I hate to say it, but it's like they come from this black and white world where their mission is right there in front of them. And they come back here to this gray and they're like, you know, this, and they're they're like, this is, I can't handle this. So they want to go back to that kind of intensity. Um, 
And so without that, they feel like they're losing their sense of being a warrior or their sense of service or their sense of duty, just kind of walling away somewhere, you know? Uh, and that was interesting for me to hear because, you know, I'm just not really looking into any of this before. I always thought, you know, it's just people see tragedy and they come back and they can't handle it. But a lot of times it's, they can't handle being away from the unit. They can't handle being away from the mission. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, the farm is kind of offers that to some degree. Of course, you know, it's, it's different. You're not being shot at or blown up at the farm, right. usually. Um, but, you know, it gives a sense of mission again. Um, and, uh, you know, gives people a sense of purpose and, and, and a way to reconnect. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, the... the uh, um, it's interesting during this pandemic, it's really kind of, uh, kind of put a light on the whole thing. I mean, they've served over 400 families in the last month. They fed over 400 families in the last month during this pandemic. But, uh, and they've, they've made it easier for people to get food without having to go to a grocery store. Um, and you know, the whole humane animal slaughter thing, they teach veterans how to be, uh, self-sufficient and others how to be self-sufficient in case things like this do happen. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's just really, in, there's a lot of really interesting things going on with it. Mm-hmm. How did you first find out about Comfort Farms? A neighbor of mine had me go down there to take, uh, I'm also a photographer. Um, uh, I was a commercial photographer for a long time. I've kind of moved away from it a little bit, but a friend of mine had me go down there and take some editorial photos for a cooking magazine mm-hmm. um and while i was down there i got to talking to john about it and it was mentioned by by the friend of mine who, who the friend of mine who sent me down there for the photos mentioned that it might make a good documentary and on the way down i was like you know i'm not uh, this there's just no you know, i'm not gonna spend all my time and money on something that's been so overdone but then like i said i went down there and I found something completely different than what i expected not to mention it was right down the road from the home of Flannery O'Connor, which is one of my favorite fiction writers. And something about it kind of struck me. Are you familiar with her? I am. I am. Yeah, well, there's something about, yeah, it's in Milledgeville, right around. The first time I went there was to visit the Flannery O'Connor house. Mm-hmm. And so when I went back down there and I was right around the corner from there, I guess maybe just the experience of, of, of uh, going to see her house before... I started to see kind of a similarity in some of the characters and stuff like that. So I started to see this kind of literary bent to it that was it was really interesting. Um, uh, kind of, and, and by that I mean kind of by way of like hope and kind of love found through kind of blood and gore maybe a little mm-hmm. bit. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't know how to put that in the right words, but. How long was the was sense? how long was the process for you, from when you got the idea, talked to John, and decided, yeah, this is a go, until you got until you finished your last edit and got it f- completed. Well, I actually finished the last edit uh, maybe a month ago, so I wow. had it mostly finished, 
and I started to, um, well, I, almost two years, because there was no money. You know, everything was me and whoever I could scrounge together and so forth. <laughs> and so. Um, but, you know, fortunately, you know, I worked as a professional DP doing commercials and stuff and director and stuff doing other kind of content. So I knew how to access a lot of this stuff for cheap. But um, it was still, you know, shoestring. But uh, it took about two years, and then I guess the edit was finished about really about a month ago. I, I put it out there to some festivals when it really wasn't done yet, mm-hmm. which I probably shouldn't have done. But you know, I figured, hey, you know, take the risk anyway. And then I think the first one that it got into after it was really done was the Beverly Hills Film Festival, which was which I know isn't some you know giant thing. Um, but uh, I did like the idea of it playing in the uh, Chinese theater. That's kind of a cool thing. <laughs> but all that was postponed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the Beverly um, Hills Film Festival is actually a very cool little festival. Oh, yeah. No, I It's know, a nice yeah. little yeah. festival. Yeah. And so we took it. You know, I'm working with uh, a sales rep and some other people. And he was like, just take that and let's move on and try to, and try to get this out there. And... Um, that's kind of what we did. And now, um, now it's everywhere. People, it's streaming on all the platforms. Is it not? No, it isn't yet. Not. It isn't yet. Mm-mm. When will people be it able will... to see this one then? Well, it's probably going to be in the next couple months. Okay. Um. Yeah, I'd like to say that it was that it is now, but no, it's probably going to be in the next couple months. Um. But, you know, for anybody that who wants to be notified, they can go to the Comfort Farms movie website and just sign up, and they'll be the first to be notified of, of when it does come out. And if I'm allowed to give that address on the air. Please know. do. It's www.comfortfarmsmovie.com, and uh, there's a lot of information on there. Uh, there's a press kit on there, trailers on there. Um, and as soon as you go onto the site, you'll get one of those little annoying pop-ups that says enter your email. Um, and if you do that, then you'll be notified as soon as it comes out. And, uh, you know, I do want, you know, of course, every filmmaker wants people to see their film, but I think especially with this one, it's got, it's got the, the chance to, to help a lot of people too. You know, as John yeah. said, you know, if this person, if this film saves one person's life, he's made a film, you know, pretty important film. <laughs> yeah. He's absolutely right. Um, absolutely right. Uh, so what? And, you know, I've gotten feedback from veterans saying that, hey, you know, I saw just the trailer and it inspired me to to get out and, and do something. So, you know, but like I said, you know, it's that. But it's also more than that. Mm-hmm. It's really a story about all of us, about the human condition, life, death, sacrifice, and love. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is a very interesting and intriguing film watching this. And Thank you. It, you know, I, it's, very, it's very well put together. Very well. Thank you. Very well put together. Well, that un- means a lot. Unfortunately, Carlisle, 
we are all out of time for the entire show. Okay. So I must bid you adieu, but I hope you will come back on the show again in the future. Oh, I absolutely will. I really appreciate you having me on here. You know, now get to work and try and come up with another film to make while we're on lockdown. Oh, I got one. <laughs> All right. Got one. Good. Good. Right. Get to work as soon as you can. We need more yeah. films. Yeah, it's turning around in my head all the time. Uh, well, Carlisle, thank you so much. And everybody can be on the lookout for Comfort Farms. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Carlisle. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have today. Next week, I'm excited. We're going to have the filmmaker here from a film I like called Breaking for Whales. And also uh, a filmmaker for a short, another short film. Uh, we're going to have two guests next week. As I said, we're booked up through the middle of June with live guests every week for you. Uh, and more being added all the time. But in the meantime, plenty of films out there. Social distance. Wash your hands. Wash your keyboards, too, people. Because I know a lot of you, you're playing with your cell phones and your keyboards. Disinfect those, too. And we'll keep hoping for sooner rather than later uh, that we're all back sitting in movie theaters uh, enjoying films uh, as they're meant to be enjoyed in their finest. But until next week... I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.